Well, good morning. We're going to continue on in our study of the book of Colossians. Uh, and last week I introduced the third chapter, and we're going to now look at the second section of, of that. I've entitled uh, this uh, little mini-series I'm doing here, part of Colossians, The Gaze of the Soul, as we're looking here at Colossians 3. So this is part two of that, where we will be looking at verses 5 through 11. Last week we just did the first four verses, and now we're going to look at, at 5 through 11. So if you want, you can turn in your Bible. We'll be reading that passage here in, in just a little bit. But I want to uh, just do a little bit of review to remind us of where we're at. So from last week, there's some kind of key uh, points of the first four verses that I want you just to, to make sure you hang on to because they, of course, set the stage for what we're looking at here. So first off, just a, a reminder that we are living a new life, capitalized new. This is something, uh, and it's so profound, I don't think we, it's hard to grasp the, the depths of that, but through Christ's death and resurrection and his work that he does uh, in us, it truly is a new life. And we need to understand better what that, what that looks like and what that should mean for us on a daily basis. But in some profound way, we have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And that, you know, those were the, I mean, we, we see it and we believe that that's what happened with Christ. But how do we play into that? How does that then translate into our lives? So that's what we're going to be looking at as we, as we go through this section. Well, we also were reminded last week about the need for us to, to seek and to set our minds on things above. So this is reference to things in, in, in heaven, but more specifically, not just heavenly, ethereal, out there things, but focusing on Christ, that our gaze should be on Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God. And we remember that that has something to do with um, his, it's a place of honor, that after uh, his uh, ascension after the resurrection, he was seated at the right hand of God, which is his place of honor, and he's there uh, serving as a mediator for us, um, so much that goes on there, but that is where our, our focus, our gaze is to be, is to be on Christ. Then we looked at a reminder that Paul also said in another epistle that, that he lives this new life by faith. Okay, so faith is another one of those words that it says easy, does hard. What does that really, what does that really look like? So I, last week I tried to, um, to flesh that out a little bit by looking at this, um, story in the book of Numbers and then Jesus' interpretation of that in John chapter three about the serpent lifted up in the wilderness and the people gazing on that, looking at the, that to be healed from the, the bites that they were getting. And then Jesus interprets that for us and says that, that he is uh, likewise the Son of Man lifted up, that he needs to be lifted up. So uh, in A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, he, he defines this way, that faith is this gaze of a soul upon a saving God. So that's this, this theme, this thread that I'm wanting to weave through this passage is this idea of our gaze, our look, our focus on Christ. And, and what does that entail? Uh, what happens when that goes wrong? We don't do that. How do we get off track? How can we help uh, focus our attention, focus our, ourselves, our, our soul, truly on, on Christ in that way that it truly is a gaze? So that's what we want to look at. 
Another element last week, we talked about the fact that it says that our lives are hidden with Christ. And that really has two meanings. So just by way of reminder that it's yet to be revealed. We are being transformed, but we don't know all that it's going to be. But in 1 John, it tells us that when we ultimately when we see him, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. So there's a yet to be revealed aspect to it. But we also have the comfort that our lives are kept safe during this time that we're safe, hidden in, in Christ. So it's something we, we need to uh, really grasp and take a hold of and take comfort in that uh, he has uh, continued to keep us safe. But most exciting, I think, is that in this new life, we're going somewhere. It isn't just that God said he's going to transform us and then put us on a shelf or in a museum or something, but there's something happening and we're living that out. And sometimes it's hard to see in the day-to-day of what's happening. But he has promised that there is something happening in our lives. And what is that? Basically, that we are in a state of continual transformation. Second Corinthians 3.18, that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And like I said in First John, that, that uh, ultimately we will be like Christ when we see him as he is. So what is that all going to look like? We don't know, but... It tells us in this stage that we're living in, this phase of our lives, that it should be, we should expect it to be, a continual transformational effort of our lives. So we need to look at and you know, understand what, you know, what is God doing and, and, what, uh, and how do we participate in that. And that's the kind of the real exciting thing that we're going to look at. So I want to start by looking at this. What does this life of transformation look like? Is it just a, a passive spectator sport? Do we just sit somewhere and, and watch it slowly morph into a butterfly? Or is there something more to it? So the best definition I found was uh, that I really, uh, I think has a lot to it. I'm going to put it up here. We're going to read in just a moment. Is from a commentator named Douglas Moo in his um, commentary on, on Colossians. So it's a little long and it's a little dense, but we're going to kind of step through it uh, slowly, and there's a couple of points I wanna, I'm going to draw out from that. So let me read it here, and then we'll uh, drop back. So don't, don't worry. Uh, these will be posted afterwards, so uh, don't try to copy all this. But it says, We who have died to the elements of the world referencing earlier in chapter 3 and then also what we read in chapter 2 of Colossians, and to the power of sin, from Romans 6, because of our union with Christ are to become dead to sin in the realities of everyday life. But this putting to death of sin is not only demanded by our incorporation into Christ, it is also empowered and affected by it. Union with Christ, because it puts us in a new relationship to sin and brings us into the sphere of the Spirit's power, will, will impact the way we live. Ultimately, then, the imperative put to death in this verse must be viewed as a call to respond to and cooperate with the transformative power that is already operative within us. Wow, there's a lot there. But do you see, I hope you can see the, the basic elements of that, that, that 
When we talked last week about what are motivations and desires, I'll talk about a little, you know, just a moment about some of that. But it's so much more than us thinking we have a, a, a list of, of do's and don'ts that we're going to adhere to, and we're going to, uh, and we're going to be the very best at all, all of this. But there's really this this work of the Spirit working in our lives to transform us. And it, it is this new life that truly is something fundamentally different than what we lived before. But the, the, fa- the fact that he says there at the end that uh, first that it's not only required of us, but it has to be empowered and affected by Christ's work in us. But then he says, so what is our role here? It's to be, we want to respond to it, but it's also to cooperate with this transformative work that that's operating already operating within us we don't even maybe know the ways but god is already working and transforming us and wouldn't it be great to cooperate in that to participate in that it's not us doing it it's him doing it but we have the opportunity to participate and to see this growth and transformation in our lives so to me that's just really exciting to think about that it isn't just uh I think I can, I think I can, and just uh, pulling yourself up. But this is, is looking for ways to, to know and understand and participate in what Christ is doing in us already. Okay, so verses 5 through 11 from this week. We're going to read that in just a, in just a next slide. But, but last week, uh, so we're going to talk about these, these put-offs. So that's what this section is. And then next week, we'll look at the, the put-ons, okay? And remember what I said what those are? Think of, like, taking clothes off and putting clothes on. All right, that's, that's how to interpret this. But last week, I at the end, I asked you in whatever uh, forum worked for you to, to consider what our de- desires or motivations should be in observing these behavioral lists. So if you look at these as a list, and uh, some people had written, had call them the vice list and the virtue list. Now, it, you know, so is that what it is? Is kind of a, a just a kind of a list of, uh, of good things or um, uh, just you know, good ideas to try to observe or laws or rules? Is it a, a list of rules? But I, I wanted to highlight last week that there that um, Paul is telling us that, that these two things, legalism and aestheticism, remember? There was a lot about that. But it says that those things, like Parker just prayed, that if you just view it as a set of, of rules that I'm going to just, just religiously keep, and that's some kind of legalism, or if it's I'm just going to discipline myself fiercely until um, I you know, whip my body into shape until I... I, uh, I can do all of these things. He tells us at the end of, of chapter 2 there that these are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Wow. So where does that, does that leave us in some kind of... I mean, if that that's, sounds like some pretty serious kind of commitment that people might try to make to, to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the list. But I was uh, trying to you know, caution you all, every, like all of us, that... Those are of no value. Paul tells us they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I asked you if you could discuss that, and I'd, I'd love to hear some of the discussions that may have taken place uh, about what you think some of our desires or motivations should be. I just want to offer a few. I'm not saying that this is the all-inclusive. 
the end all list or something, but for this thread that I'm wanting to weave of, of the gaze of Christ, uh, the gaze on Christ of, of our souls, I would like to offer these as some, uh, some motivations and some things that we would want to see in our desires as we um, live this life, this transformed life. Well, ultimately, we would want to see just new desires and affections. That as we focus on Christ, there would be a change in our desires and affections. I mean, we see that in, in lots of different ways in our life, right? How about, I was just thinking of the silly example of cotton candy. Can you remember as a kid thinking, oh, you just, you'd see that and it just seems so miraculous. And, and, and now I see that and I don't know, it's like, oh. And also, it's probably because I've cleaned up the mess a few times too, but just cotton candy has no appeal. Uh, so that's obviously a simple, trivial example. But there are transformations that take place in our lives and our desires and affections. And as we focus on Christ, we would want to see it's not just, just like say, beating ourselves into submission, but that truly the things that, that seemed appealing and attractive, they begin to change. And they, they aren't the same as we, as we go on in life. So that, that is one of the things that we want to keep in mind is that in our gaze upon Christ, we, we should and we want to see desires and affections in our lives change. Well, another aspect kind of related to that, but as if you think about our, we're going through our life and we have this, this, this gaze on Christ, there should be a desire that you don't want to be distracted from that. That ultimately, if someone says, or you're, you're encouraged not to do something, it isn't just, oh, you know, God's this cosmic killjoy just trying to keep us from all the fun stuff in life. But no, this, this is seen as that would be a distraction. Why would I want that? That, that, that's, that would just be taking my eyes off of the prize or what I really desire in life and these new desires and new affections. So I would offer that too, that, that we would want to see our, our affections, our motivations change to where we, we would see some of these things that even we're told to put off not as, as just that we're, we're doing that as a sacrifice or something, but no, they're just, they're not interesting. They're a distraction. I don't even want those things. And finally, this might sum up all of this, but is a desire to please God. Now, this is not pleasing in the sense of, oh, look what I've done and now I, I've proven myself to Him. But no, there's a, there's a true sense of, and a pure sense of, of wanting to please God that isn't earning anything, that isn't, making you think that he is in your debt, but wanting to please God because you begin to know who he is. So these are just some, uh, some of the things that I would offer to say, okay, this is what we want to see in ourselves as we begin this, this look at what does this gaze toward Christ look like. So let's read the passage with those, those uh, caveats there in mind and, and then begin to see how this might apply in our lives. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. 
But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here then is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is in all and in, and in all. Christ is all and in all. Beautiful way he ends this little subsection here, tying it back to the first chapter of Colossians, just the, the, it's the preeminence of Christ. That's this, the title of our whole series here, is that it is Christ in all and he is all. So here's this list, okay, this list of things that... <clears throat> We can read and we can we can recognize uh, some of these, and there's a lot in here just in the structure of how, how Paul created this. And there's there's big pieces of this we're not even going to touch today. There's the, the part about some of those things at the beginning are kind of internal and kind of personal. The things that uh, impurity, passion, evil desires, those things uh, they have kind of a personal nature to them. And then the second list is kind of interesting because it has to do with things that have more to do with our relations with other other people, the anger and uh, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. So there's lots that can be pulled out of that, and next week we're actually going to be looking at some of the more of the communal aspect of this. It isn't just a private, privatized religion, we know, but this is the all of us living together as a body of believers. But today we don't have time to pull all those pieces apart, but I'm going to focus on on, on two things. First is, at the beginning where I underlined there, he talks about covetousness. He says, which is idolatry? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Just that seemed like that, that's tacked on there, and it's like, wow. Why, what does that mean? Why, what does idolatry have to do with covetousness? So apparently, as the, as the linguists uh, dissect this, that which is idolatry is specifically tied to the covetousness. And so you might say, well, does it, is that different from the others? Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. So I'm going to take the liberty today of being a little bit more expansive uh, in, in the way I'm uh, looking at this application of covetousness as idolatry. Now, in case you think I'm going too far afield, I, I would offer that you don't have to take too much effort to go to the book of James and look at chapters 1 and chapter 4 to scratch the surface and to see there's some real connections between our desires, our passions, our behaviors, and where that leads. And so, so I think it's uh, not w- without some, uh, some good evidence to, to explore this that there's something happening in the way covetousness or greed, I'm going to translate it to greed to make it a little simple, simpler so I don't have to keep saying covetousness because that's hard. So I'm going to look at greed, but how is that idolatry and what does that look like in our lives? So let's look at this, uh, exploring greed as idolatry. So I, here's a definition I'm going to put up here uh, in just a second from a guy named Daniel Wilson. I believe he's a Puritan writer, but this was taken from a book by the name Greed as Idolatry, the Origin and Meaning 
of a Pauline metaphor uh, written by Brian Rosner. But I thought he captured this very well on this, this idea of, of why would idolatry be tied to something like our desires for things. So, again, a little bit deep and dense here, but let's, let's read through this here. He says, Idolatry of the heart, it transfers the thoughts, the desires, the affections, the confidence, the expectations and notions of happiness from God, our Creator and Lord, to vile earthly treasures, to golden dust. Avarice makes a man an idolater because he does for money all that he ought to do for God. So at the beginning, hang on to this, that idolatry of the heart, he says, it, it transfers. You're transferring thoughts, desires, affections, confidence, expectations, and notions of happiness from a focus that should be on God, on Christ seated at the right hand, and transfers it downward to something else. And, and so we can see it obviously in, in material idols when we see worshiping the golden calf or something, right? And we can see those, those pictures. But we look at our lives and say, well, we don't have those, and so... I guess that was an Old Testament thing. We don't have to worry about that. Well, sorry to break it to you, but I think we do. And what I want to do is offer some some modern-day examples that I'm, it's a little ner- uh, nervous doing because, you know, it goes to meddling real quick because some of these things are going to sound like, well, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're telling me this. Well, I just want you to know that, you know, I can look. We're all in this together, right? We are all uh, in this state of being transformed. So I want to offer these, again, not as a list of, I don't want, this is not a new list, okay, a new list for you to write down and say, okay, don't do that, don't do that. I'm going to offer these as examples for you to think about what, how does this idea of idolatry play out when this is happening in my life, okay? So here's a real simple one that we're going to uh, take as an example. First one is, Buying a lottery ticket or entering a sweepstakes. Well, that's pretty uh, common right now, right? In fact, wasn't there some huge lottery out there right now? A billion, over a billion dollars or something like that. And there's this fever all around the country. But, you know, even if you don't do that, entering a sweepstakes, right? I mean, I, I, I had done that, you know, for many years. Reader's Digest had a sweepstakes, right? And send in the little thing. But what I want you to do is to consider this. Why would we say we don't want to uh, or we shouldn't enter a lottery or a a sweepstake because it's wasting God's money? Well, lots of things like that could happen, but that's not what I want to explore. I want you to explore your mind when when this happens because I know because I've been there, right? You send that in and what's in your mind? You think, oh man, $10 million. If I had $10 million, what would I do? Oh man, I'd, I'd do this. I'd buy a house, I'd get a car, or, or I'd, I'd do something maybe even philanthropic. I would give it away. I would buy a, this. I would. But do you see, do you see the change, right? We, if we have our focus on God, we're looking at Christ, and then all of a sudden we think, oh man, if I only had, if I had $10 million. <clears throat> do you see the gaze changing? It's coming downward to saying, what would I do? What would happen in my life, how would it be better if I had this thing? So you, I trust you see that picture because you're going to see 
this kind of repeated theme through all of these, even though they're, they're different examples. What about in your work life and looking for a promotion? What's the mindset there? So these aren't, you know, this is not bad, and that's not that this should never happen, but you have to learn to look at yourself and say, what am I being motivated by? Am I saying, okay, I'll be the one. When I walk into the room, they're going to be looking to me. They're going to be respecting me. Do you see, again, drawing a gaze away from Christ, and it's toward yourself? What? And you might even think again, nobly, well, I'm going to fix this place. I'm going to be a good manager. I'm, but there's, there's some, uh, an inward focus that starts to take place, or can take place, when this happens. How about struggling with addictions of any sort, sexual addictions or substance abuse or uh, you know, just so many things out there? If you start to to take some of those apart, and there's so many good, there's uh, some several very good books of, uh, that help us uh, do this. But really, what is it saying? In the middle of an addiction, you're saying something to yourself that this thing, this item, this behavior, this whatever this is, is going to do something. It's going to grant me some happiness or some relief or something. But you. Again, I am claiming that this is taking your gaze off of Christ and saying, right now, this is more important to me. I would rather do this because I believe this, this will make things better for me now. Well, again, that's a loss of focus, which, which I am claiming that all of these things are some form of idolatry, that we're taking our eyes off of God and into something else. How about this? Fear of financial loss or unexpected expense. And I've shared this with some in our small group, so they pardon uh, me sharing this. But I, just personally, I can tell you there was a time early in our marriage where Greta and I were hit with an unexpected medical expense that was out of the blue and I was unprepared for. And, and I, but what I remember was my response. My first blink impulse was, oh, no. What am I going to do? Okay, I can borrow the money. I can, I'm, I can work another job. I can, there, some way I was going to fix this problem. And it wasn't until later that I almost felt like God putting his thumb on me and saying, you didn't even ask. You didn't even consult me. I just immediately turned my gaze from Christ to myself and how I was going to fix the problem. Anxiety in new situations. How easy is it to walk into a new situation and to, to feel some anxiousness about, okay, I don't know these people. Who are they? What are they going to think of me? Or am I going to have, am I going to be you know, viewed right? All those things. But again, the focus has changed. It's, it's, it's looking inward, not, uh, not at Christ, but at something in you. Well, what about anger uh, but toward another person? What are you wanting there? You're wanting some control. You're wanting something in your life that you're not getting. And so that usually it can often result in anger. Anger surfaces out of, of feeling like, uh, I can't, I'm not controlling this, and I, now I'm, this is how it's going to come out. But again, that is a, I'm offering this as a, another example of this being a form of idolatry where we are looking to something other than God to meet our fundamental needs. So the question we each need to ask in this is, 
put can be put this way. What is my functional God in each of these situations? As I look at this situation functionally, there is a God, small g, at work here that I am oftentimes paying more attention to than the preeminent Christ, the God, the creator of the universe, I am looking at because that seems more important to me at this moment. And so as you look at that and as we, we say, what, what am I really functionally, what am I really uh, doing here? I have to ask this second question is, is how, does, how does what is happening through this serve to take my gaze off of Christ? So whatever the situation is, I listed a few, right? And, and I have examples, and, but you've got your examples. You've got your situations that you know cause some kind of, it's usually in some kind of an emotional response or something that you'll, you'll see these surface. But how is that serving to take your gaze off of Christ? And that's what I want to look at and say, where are, are we just stuck with that? Are we just, again, we can't rely on asceticism or legalism to do that, and we want to know, is there something better? So how can we keep our gaze on Christ? So I'm going to offer a couple of um, what I might, you might call tools or things that you can, you can uh, maybe think about having to, to say, okay, now I see this, what, what can I do? And then I want to walk through an example that we read in Scripture. So first is just to just understand your propensity to lose focus, that we all have to recognize that our feet are clay and we, it's just easy for us to get distracted by the things of the world. They're, they're just, they're out there. We have an enemy who is uh, seeking to use any, all of those things to distract us. But we have to remember, like the hymn, hymn, uh, hymn writer wrote, uh, just that prayer, bind my wandering heart to thee. They're just pleading with God. I want my, I know I have a wandering heart and I want it to be bound to you because I don't want to lose this focus. So here's a couple of just, uh, uh, in fact, we're going to talk more about this next week, but I just want to offer this one because this is, you'll see this woven all through the book of Colossians here. And I'm going to phrase it this way, learn to see thankfulness as, as an arresting tool. A resting tool. What do I mean by that? I mean that sometimes these these situations and these circumstances can come up. They seem to come up out of nowhere, and maybe you don't even recognize it. But as you learn to recognize, oh boy, why is this making me mad? Why am I frustrated? Why am, what is happening here? How can you begin to change the way this you've learned to handle these situations? And I've found that thankfulness. A deliberate offering of, of uh, thankful spirit can help in this. So just a, a, a quick little example here. Uh, and I, I, you know, I get to practice this all the time too. But um, out in front of our house on Sherwood Boulevard, where we live in White Rock, the county is undertaking a project to put subsurface drainage in. So they're having to dig down through basalt and dirt 13 feet deep to run this, these big culverts under, underground there. Well, it's hard work, and it's taken months and months and months. And there has been, there was in April and May, uh, most of June, it was just uh, dust. I mean, just these trucks up and down the road and dust and blowing into the houses. And, 
everything. Well, now the rains start. And as I told one woman driving by, she said, this is ridiculous. And I said, it's not dusty. Uh, <laughs> but it's just a mud bog out there. I mean, this morning, if you could see, it's just a mud bog that we drive through. And, you know, it's easy to go down the path of this county. And why don't we do this? And why can't they? And why aren't they faster? All these things. But this is an error. So when, when that starts to happen, especially what we've been through with the lack of rain and the fires and all that, just to remember God's provision in rain. And, and I've covenanted, I'm not going to complain about rain. I'm just not going to do it. So I'm going to thank him. And I'm going to say, Lord, thank you for the rain. And you know what? We'll figure out a way. And we'll, I'm not going to worry about washing a car for another few months here because it's just going to be in the mud again. But oftentimes there are ways that you can use thankfulness just to stop a, a pattern or behavior that's starting to think about um, you know, something that just a recognition and not just a accepting or, or just presuming upon God that, yeah, we have uh, fresh, clean water coming out of the, our faucets. And, and uh, that's just, we're, we're do that. We're owed that because we're Americans after all. Um, but just to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the water. Thank you that I can have this electricity 24-7. So that's just, I offer that, and we'll talk more about that next week, about, about ways we can move forward. But I, there's also something that along that line, though, is, is learning to turn your focus toward God. How can we do that? How can we take, you know, if, if this, like I say, an arresting tool maybe just helps us catch ourselves, but then how do we begin to, to move forward into something where we refocus our gaze upon Christ? So what I want to do is take Psalm 77 as an example, and we're going to read through this. I'm going to put it up here on the screen, and, and we're going to read through the whole thing in pieces and have a little commentary. But I want you to observe the, the different movements through this psalm and in light of what we're talking about, about the gaze on Christ, what the psalmist does as he finds himself in a similar situation. So, let's look at Psalm 77, keeping the gaze on God. It starts out, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. Well, what does that sound like? Well, obviously, he's experiencing some real and protracted trouble or anguish in his life. When you start talking about the, the nights and eyelids being kept open, you know, this isn't just a flash, something, but there's, there's concern, there's worry, there's fears, whatever it is. He's experiencing something even to the point that, you know, this is not just some, he can just look for some easy distraction to, to kind of fix the problem. But, but there's really a sense that, that he, even when, he says, when he remembers God, he says, I moan. Why would that be? What is, what is behind that? So this is real trouble. And just, uh, we want to keep this in mind that one of the beauties of the Psalms as we read them is that it doesn't, 
sugarcoat candy, give us some, you know, pie in the sky view of life and that, uh, that everything's just going to be okay and we're promised just a life of ease. But the psalmists go through some very difficult circumstances. We don't know what they all were, but you can hear, you can read the very visceral language that they use of the trouble that they're in. He goes on to say, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. But you see, there's a slight turn here in, the, in, his, in what he's writing here. There's a turn toward remembering. He's experiencing everything, but he's, he says, in fact, he, a, he said, my, my spirit made a diligent search. So we can see here, we get to actively participate in this process, right? A dil- diligent search means there's some effort, some work to that. But he's stopping himself to say, I'm going to do a search. Now, what's he going to search for? What's he going to look at? Ways to attack his enemies or get back at him? Well, I don't think so. He goes on to say, <clears throat> Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Well, the first thing that's interesting here as you read this, I I found fascinating, is that look at how he addresses God in, in the third person. Will the Lord, has his, are his, has God, has he, these third person references uh, to God. So to me, I can see him, you know, still feeling kind of at a distance here and, and uh, still struggling. And it makes me wonder this, that yes, while they, we can read those as rhetorical questions, don't you think that it could be very easily possible that they're arising from how it's really feeling at that moment? For him at that moment, it could really feel that way, that he's being spurned forever and that he's been forgotten and his, his promises have come to an end. Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he, does he not have compassion? So there have, there's, must be elements of this where he, he's experiencing that, but he's asking this, this question, and we, we can read over that too quickly and just say, oh, yeah, those are rhetorical, because obviously that's not the case. But in the middle of it, it can look very different. He goes on to say, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So what is he doing? He's first making an active appeal to the history of God's working through history. He's looking back in this diligent search. He's looking back and seeing, I'm going to appeal to this, to the years, the years we know of God's working uh, with his people and the things that he's done. And so he says, I will ponder all your work and, and meditate on your mighty deeds. So now he's, he's turning his, he's choosing to turn his gaze toward God and toward what he's done. But you also notice interesting here um, that he, um, he switches the, the reference here to the second person. He's saying... Um, 
that I will remember your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. There's a, a shift here from God being more you know, distant and remote to something. No, he's, he's now, he's my God, and I'm, I'm, he's addressing God directly. He says then, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So he starts here by acknowledging some uh, aspects of God's status, his character, who he is, that he is holy, and that he has a status that is not like any other God that we might turn to. And so he's, he's making that, that verbal confession to God. And he's remembering God's general and specific workings with his people, all the way you know, down to uh, the children of Jacob and Joseph, to a very specific working with the nation of Israel. But he's remembering these things that God has done. Okay, nearing the end here. But he says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Well, here the psalmist is is recalling some very tangible and very powerful ways that God has worked through history. God is not just a... uh, kind of a cosmic force for good that that, uh, sort of oozes around. But he's a powerful, almighty God. And we want to remember, we see that. So as we hear thunder and the flashes of lightning, we remember this God is is the author behind it. So the psalmist is remembering those things. He sees God's power and majesty put on display as an opportunity for me to gaze and to acknowledge God as as his, his Savior. And then the beautiful end to this psalm finishes with this. Your way was through the sea, your paths through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So a couple of observations there. He's acknowledging that God's path is sometimes through the sea and sometimes through the great waters. He's not saying that God's going to He's going to take you on the bypass around Troublesville. But you may be going right through it. But God is truly there. He says, your footprints, right? That's probably all seen the old poster uh, that, that uh, I believe obviously was taken from this. But, but God was there. We don't, didn't know. We don't necessarily see how he's leading through this. But we have this confidence that he led his people through this. And then he goes on, and when he talks about the flock there and being led by uh, the hand of Moses and Aaron, I think I see that as a very personal image of a recognition of being led and cared for like a shepherd cares for his sheep. So if you think about the progress of this, do you see, I hope you can see this, the movements of this psalm from angst and worry through a, what I call an upward spiral toward ultimately focusing on God and then being able to be in confidence uh, resting uh, in Him. 
I just wanted to share one one quick example uh, where I I uh, felt this very very personally myself in the middle of the construction project here. There was several phases where things were uh, just overwhelming, and there were just uh, more things than we could try to manage. And it was I found myself at night at times laying in bed, just just thinking through all the things that had to happen and and uh, the sequencing and timing and and it was just it was uh, but it was disturbing my sleep you know and I knew well, this isn't right but how do you force yourself to go to sleep well you don't but one night in the middle of this happening just into my head popped this verse and thou shall keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee King James, sorry, that's probably how I memorized it back when I was a kid. But that came to my mind. And thou shalt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. And as I said that and repeated that, laying there in bed, the, the thought was going through my mind. My mind and thee. Mind thee. And as it, I said it over and over, it was, it was more and more like, and pretty soon it was like, thee, thee. There's just thee. I need to focus on Christ and you know I fell asleep and I woke up in the morning and I got up and I turned on the computer and a little daily devotional popped up and uh, it popped up and, and the verse of the day was Isaiah 26 3 and thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind was stayed on thee and it was just like I just wanted to just fall and just say God you care you really do care so just like the psalmist in Psalm 77, we want to, to be able to, to turn our, our attention, our gaze on Christ, and not get it off on all these other things that are distracting. So to wrap up, we're living this, this new life of transformation and renewal. We're in this in-between phase of um, before the ultimate uh, Restoration and redemption of all things, but it's this, this, we have this hope that it's a life of transformation and renewal that, that uh, God is doing in us. A couple of phrases I ran across in studying for this that I thought were just poignant in their, in their uh, pithiness here. One is, you want to become what you are. It's this, another way of phrase, the, the already and not yet that we have this hope that we are new creatures in Christ, but we want to become that. We want to become that in its fullest sense. And then, in light of what we're reading today on the put-offs, another is, let the old man who has died with Christ be dead. Just let him be dead. Why do we keep dredging up the old man? So as we look at these things, these put-offs, can we see those as part of of the old man and why would we do that why would we want in any way to go start digging up and playing around with dead corpses all right we let we want to let that old man be dead so i want you to think about this to see this list in in verses 5 through 11 and these put-offs not as some kind of an achievement list or a uh you know some kind of a rule list for you to accomplish or to adhere to in some in some legalistic or ascetic way, but rather <clears throat> we can see these as, as indicators of things that we want to leave behind as Christ is transforming us into his image 
slowly and faithfully. So as he's doing that, we want to participate in that as Mu talked about in the beginning and see these things as, thank you, Lord, that that, that isn't enticing to me like it was. And then uh, and, and continue to watch as, as God uh, works that out. All right, so where are we going now? Well, next week we're going to look at uh, the next section of Chapter 3, which talks is, is sometimes called the put-on list. And, and it's encouraging because, again, it emphasizes the fact that we're not just told this list of don't, 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 don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. It's some sort of just a set of rules. But actually, this has much more this view of, of putting on something that just indicates the new life, the new creation that we are. So what I'd like, uh, if you could do, um, is to think about this this week. As we look forward to that, as we turn our focus, maybe even what seems like kind of a, a negative list of things not to do, and we're looking now next week at, at, well, what should we do? What should our focus be? Think about this. How can you know and, and be encouraged that you're on the right track? Wouldn't it be nice to know that uh, if we grasp this, that there would be ways that we could look at our lives and say, Thank you, Lord. You are transforming me. It's not the end, and I know it's not going to be until we see him face to face, but there's progress, and we can, thank, we can thank him for his faithful work. So be thinking about that. What are some ways you might recognize growth and transformation in your life and in the life of those around you? Because you'll see next week we're going to be including, you'll see it's, it isn't just individual privatized religion, but it's also living that out in the corporate sense of how do we do that together. Well, let me close there, and then uh, we're going to sing uh, the same song we sang last week. Can you believe it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Last week we just did the chorus two times, and I didn't realize, I was told that uh, in their database they can track this, that we haven't sung that here for 10 years. And I thought, wow. Um, what a great song for this. So we're actually going to sing it again, but we're going to sing two of the verses so you get to kind of even capture more of the essence of what's behind that. So let me pray, and then we'll uh, sing that uh, song to close. <clears throat> Father, I give you praise that you are a God who, who created us, who knows us, who loves us, and you do uh, transform us into the, the very image of our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just pray that you would give us that desire, though that uh, uh, just bottom line want to, to follow you, to know you, to see our lives transformed. I thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here that we can come together and proclaim this truth uh, in you. In Jesus' name, amen.